Okay, um, we're going to begin this next story. It's called Summer Camp 1966. It's a story about the first Boston Sea Scouts. It's taken from uh, Book 2, Boston 1960 to 1970. And as I said, this is 1966. Ah, it's part of the big story, the big chapter called The Garage. It was during the time I spent at the garage that the Sea Scouts went on summer camp to Gloucestershire. Ruth and I had been involved with this unit since the mid-1950s and we were both still there. By now, I'd become scout leader and Ruth was the cub leader or our Kayla. During my early years with this unit, they had held a summer camp at the Gloucestershire County Scout Campsite at Cranham. Uh, this beautiful village was set in a deep, quiet, secluded valley at, at about 10 miles east of Gloucester. A small single-track road passed through, dropping steeply to the valley floor from high hills on each side. The centre of the village comprised the County Scout HQ itself, an impressive barn-type structure built in Cotswold stone, together with a group of traditional stone outbuildings. The whole surrounded by an arrangement of fields allotted as individual campsites. The village proper comprised a number of small Cotswold stone-built houses dotted haphazardly on either side of the road. At the very base of the valley and adjacent to the Scout HU car park, a small river crossed through. In a group of trees about 200 yards to one side, a natural dam had created a small lake which was used for strictly, strictly supervised swimming. The first Boston troop had held a memorable camp there in 1958 when eight patrols of eight boys had enjoyed superb weather on a hilltop campsite overlooking the village from the east. There were no shops close by so all provisions had to be ordered from the general store in nearby Painswick. Some form of vehicle was therefore needed at camp to ensure transport of supplies and provide for emergencies. I completed my first class hike here, uh, which had included circumnavigating Birdlip Hill. If any of you know that area, that's pretty horrendous. A memorable feat for anyone knowing the size of this local feature. Earlier in the year, the Patrol Leaders Council, this is back to 1966, Patrol Leaders Council had decided they would like to revisit Cranham on my recommendation. All that remained was a brief trip with some of the leaders to confirm that everything was still available. Back at the garage, it took some considerable persuasion and assistance from Herbert, my mentor at the garage, for me to procure an actual day off and manage to obtain a car for the planned journey. Heart in mouth during the negotiations, which should not really have been necessary, only Herbert, Herbert Stanwell, knew the true destination of the day. Transport. It was the end of a week in April. The entourage, including myself and Ruth, plus two teenage patrol leaders and Charlie Newham, our troop leader, all in full uniform for this official outing. It would have been more than my life was worth to leave Charlie out. As troop leader, the chain of command passed from me through him to the rest of the unit. 
he took his position very seriously and although very difficult to control at times he was a most able NCO. From the car sales list Herbert and I had managed to find one with the current tax disc still in place. It turned out to be a second-hand two-door HA Vauxhall Viva, a model popularly advertised at that time as the car with the millionaire ride. This feature was to be well tested during our almost 500-mile round trip with three hulking teenage lads squeezed into the rear seats. An added advantage for the trip was that this was a basic two-door model, no risk of their falling out of rear doors as they fought for space during the long journey. The journey was marked markedly uneventful and resulted in confirmation that Cranham would indeed suit our needs. The three lads quickly explained the benefits of the site and surrounding areas to their anxious compatriots. Uh, we were planning to take six patrols, totalling 36 to 40 boys. Ruth was also going with us and John Atterby was my assistant leader. As a, as a troop, the 1st Boston was proud of its well above average training for the boys in outdoor pursuits. The troop had always led the district in ensuring that patrols developed independent spirits and an adequate aptitude to cope with any situation they were confronted with. Making decisions on their own was all part of the training. Consequently, they had won the district camping competition convincingly every year since its inception in 1955 when I had been part of the original patrol. Jamboree hijinks. Having mentioned aptitude and ability to cope, we take a huge leap into 1972. I was a member of the small planning committee for the first county-based jamboree at the county showground and due to daily responsibilities at the event itself I had to leave the two patrols of the troop I was running then, the 6th Boston, quite on their own to cope. Not only that but they had our four-year-old daughter Helen to cope with too. Next to our site at the Lincoln County Showground for this event were the 5th Boston, whose group leader was also our district commissioner. He made it quite clear, clearly understood earlier that he resented my involvement in the organisation of the event. He managed to corner me one evening on my return to our site to ask if I thought I was being sufficiently responsible in allowing my two patrols to be using petrol stoves for their cooking without supervision. Our troop had taken quite some time to decide on the cooking method to be used at the Jamboree where open fires were not allowed. The parents of one of our boys had kindly offered to pay for whatever system we chose. We jointly chose the most expensive and efficient stoves on the market, the modern Optimus petrol stove. If I remember correctly, even in 1972, they cost over £40 each. Money well spent, there was some simplicity itself and provided good hot food in a fraction of the time taken by the older paraffin models. I think it was the roaring that made our DC... <laughs> that our DC did not understand. T 
together with the fact that the heat from the stove vaporized the petrol in its tank, actuating the fuel flow and made the whole thing possible. Another storm in a teacup, but sufficient to emphasize that we took training very seriously. The boys in our troop were trained to cope with life just as I had been myself. I would not take I would not make any changes at that camp as I was fully confident that the boys I had left in charge knew more about what they were doing than the DC himself. I was gratified a year or so later to be asked by a neighbouring district to be their judge for their annual camping competition. Back to 1966 and taking ladies to live and actually sleep in a scout camp brought with it some strict rules to prevent integration of the sexes, but more of this later. Preparation for the summer camp continued as normal as the months passed. Tents were erected, repaired and reproofed, pots and pans checked and latrine screens recovered in strong hessian. A coach was booked to transport the unit and all their gear. As time grew nearer, my Roots Groove truck sales course had finished and the new job begun in, in earnest. I was still required to help at the Mainridge garage at weekends and Robert was not keen to let me have any longer off than my stipulated week. This created problems as the troop were to leave on a Saturday for nine days. The only way I could fit it in uh, was to go late on a Sunday evening and at least have the second, the second weekend in camp. Ruth and I arrived, arrived late on the Sunday. We travelled in a minivan from the garage. Why, I cannot quite recall. Perhaps it was the only vehicle with a current tax disc. It was certainly nothing like as comfortable as that HA Vauxhall Viva. The camp. John had already been there with the boys for two days and taken responsibility for setting up the tents in patrol areas. The leaders located to one side and the tent Ruth and I were to use was even further away, close to the first aid tent. The site we had chosen was south facing and completely surrounded by woodland. Our tent was downhill of all the others on a field with a quite acute slope. This became a distinct disadvantage on the second day of camp when the rain started. Each patrol had their own camp area and individual cooking arrangements using open wood fires. The duty patrol each day worked the main cooking area and provided the leaders with their food using a larger traditional open wood fire incorporating the usual handmade camp gadgets. The boys rather liked having a lady in camp and fought for the honour of taking Ruth breakfast in bed. Their culinary aptitude was most varied. Some days we had wood omelette, perhaps on another day it would be smoky flavoured bacon and egg. The rain began on Monday, unpleasant and persistent and sometimes really heavy. The main fire had a cooking shelter, but even so, due to the distance the food had to come down the field, the breakfast was virtually afloat. On Tuesday, the second day of the rain, the first aid tent sank its poles slowly tilting and the main canvas folding over drunkenly onto its side. Fortunately, no one was ill and in residence, but this did not give Ruth or myself much confidence in our own location. When planning the camp, 
we decided to keep the bus with us to use for two excursions. Whatever happened to the driver, I cannot remember. As it turned out, as the rain continued to pour relentlessly each day, we went on more excursions than originally planned. We could not have the boys sat in soaking tents and soaking ground sheets all day. It was their holiday, as well as ours, and they had saved up all year for this major annual event. To explain savings, also came into the scout training, and the boys going to annual camp were encouraged to open a camp bank. Each week they could deposit whatever they could afford into the bank with the scout unit, and that way pay for the holiday. Uniform and the like. Our Sea Scout uniform was outstandingly smart, quite different to ordinary Scouts, and the boys took great pride in wearing it. Affording it was a big problem for some who lived in estates close by where money was in very short supply. To cope with this we had stocks of second-hand but good uniform items for boys to buy at low cost. Patrol leaders, with the guidance of the unit leaders, were also able to make decisions to help patrol members finance financially in other ways if needed. Unit funds could be used to assist with big cost items like outings and annual camp, so that boys from homes where money was hard to find were never left out. This was always treated with utmost confidence of confidentiality to avoid embarrassment. Yet another part of training for life. Back at camp. This brings us back to summer camp 1966. Memorable if only for the rain. We did manage to give the boys a good time. And they visited interesting locations like Slimbridge. Peter Scott's famous Wildfowl Trust. Bristol City itself and Prignash Abbey. Prignash was a revelation as the troop had visited the same site in 1958 to find the monks beginning to build a huge abbey church which had reached only four courses from the ground and was deemed to take a further hundred years or so. Their income was from a unique pottery with dark coloured grey finish and red clay from their own site. In 1958 ladies were not allowed onto the site. In 1966 things had changed dramatically. Uh, lady visitors were being allowed and the cathedral church was almost finished. This was a result of prayer, faith and divine assistance. In the abbot's dwelling had been discovered an old master, a painting of huge value. This had been sold and the finances used to provide professional help with the building work. Confrontation Back in Boston, at the end of the camp, we had to ask our group committee of adult helpers to pay the extra cost of excursions with the bus. The committee, comprising mainly parents, were an essential part of every scout unit and there to help with financial support and general adult backup with the unit. Group committees were not involved in the day-to-day -day running or training. Our group committee were efficient fundraisers and consequently quite well off. We did not call on their aid too frequently and certainly never squandered money they supplied. Their reaction to my request to pay the original cost of the bus at camp took me by surprise. Initially, they refused. It cannot have been a huge amount for the extra trips, but the subject caused a huge ding-dong as I had 
authorise spending without their say-so. It ended up with them grudgingly paying the extra amount after I told them they would be taking the scouts themselves next year. Some folk easily forget that we also give up our spare time voluntarily and although it was a sort of holiday, every minute of every 24-hour day, 40 or so boys were our total responsibility. It so happens that I never did take that unit to summer camp again, but left that pleasure to John, whose father was chairman of that committee. That was a long one, wasn't it? But thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that story brought to you by Cracker Books, written and read by Keith Sanders. Gosh, it's over 16 minutes long. There we are. More more stories to listen to on this Buzzsprout site. Uh, Free books to download. Look at the links on Facebook Cracker Books. And over 50 videos to watch on Keith Sanders' Short Story Man on YouTube. Thank you for listening.